0: Welcome back to the podcast, binding the Bible. This is episode 84, Revelation, Embodying the Pattern of the Christ. And in this episode, I'm excited to get back into our study of the book of Revelation after taking two weeks on the podcast to have some awesome conversations and then to be able to share those with you. I'm very excited about some of the feedback that I've already received from those episodes and I do have more of them planned for the future But for this week, I wanted us to get back into our section in Revelation 11, again, as to what proves to be some of the most important parts of the book as a whole. And what I want to do as we read the remainder of the first half of chapter 11, I really want us to think in terms of a parable and to look at the broad themes that are being discussed in this section and what it teaches us about what Christians are supposed to do in embodying the pattern of the christ and i've referenced the pattern of the christ before i will bring you back up to speed as to just what i think that means and then to very clearly explain to us what it is that this passage is teaching us about our faithful witness to jesus in the world i'm real excited to get into this episode let's just jump right into it To begin this week's episode, allow me just to read Revelation 11, verses 4 through 13. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now as we get into this section in this particular episode, I want to... Honor the book of Revelation as it is meant to be listened to and as it is meant to be understood. And that is that we are given images with fantastical pictures and strange ideas and themes that are interwoven. But as Revelation 19 itself tells us, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy meaning the kinds of things that we read in the Bible that are prophetic messages. And don't forget, these are two prophets. These are men who are prophesying or women have you. And we discussed in a previous episode that these two witnesses who are prophesying are in fact these two lampstands. And so we are taking our cues from the fact that in Deuteronomy 19, we are told that on the testimony of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. And so to identify lampstands, which John has already told us in Revelation refers to the church to identify two lampstands is to identify the gathering of the faithful, where two or three are gathered in my name. There I am among them, Jesus has told us, where two of these lampstands are in fact witnessing, we have the representation of the church. And that's precisely what's going on here. And so if the testimony of Jesus, which the church has been entrusted with, If the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, then when we look at a prophetic message that these men or these followers are proclaiming, we need to keep in mind what it's telling us about Jesus. And from the beginning of the book of Revelation all the way to this point, we have identified that to each of the churches in Asia Minor, an exhortation was given to them to follow after Jesus in their own witness, And John in chapter 1 verse 5 identifies Jesus as the faithful witness. And so the churches in Asia Minor, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea are either comforted in the midst of difficulty um, by a reminder of who Jesus is, or they are rebuked in terms of compromising their witness based on who Jesus Christ is, or some churches have a blend of compromise and yet their time is difficult, what might it look like to maintain faithfulness to Jesus, the faithful witness, when you are tempted to fold on your message or you are tempted to hide your message or you realize that if you proclaim the truth in love, Um, or you've lost your love, that we need to be drawn back into who Jesus is and what it means to witness to him. And so we used the phrase that Gregory Stevenson uses called the pattern of the Christ. And churches are rebuked or comforted based upon how well or not so well they are embodying the pattern of the Christ. And the word embody, and, and why I chose to title this message, embodying the pattern of the Christ, the word embody, is a verb, As you most likely know, and it simply means to be an expression of or give a tangible or visible form to an idea, quality, or feeling. And what I want to focus in on this episode is to be an expression of or give a tangible form to something. So we as the church are meant to embody the reality of who and what Jesus was when he was on the earth. This is precisely why Paul picks up a metaphor of the body of Christ to describe us as a church and to define us in our identity in Christ. And the pattern of the Christ is very simple. And it would help us to take the pattern of the Christ and to overlay it on the passage I just read from Revelation 11 so that we don't get sidetracked in some of the minute details. The pattern of the Christ is faithful witness which leads to suffering and death which leads to vindication and resurrection. This is the pattern. At any point in time, A church might be tempted to shrink back from the message of faithfully witnessing to Jesus because they are afraid of the suffering and death that are coming. Or there are other churches who, because they are experiencing suffering and death, might be tempted to think that it's because God has left them. That is also not true. We see reality as it is defined in Jesus. And in Jesus, Jesus came to demonstrate the love of his Father to the world— And those who did not like that portrayal of God persecuted him, whipped him, betrayed him, and killed him. And Jesus says, if they call the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Jesus has warned his disciples about this, cautioned them about this, but has in fact commissioned them to love the world Anyway, and it is in fact love and self sacrificial, compassionate, dying love for one's enemies, in fact, that literally put Jesus on the cross. And so Jesus's life embodies the pattern of the Christ, right? The Messiah, the King, the ruler. And here it is again faithful witness to the truth leads to suffering and death, which leads to vindication and resurrection. Now, I'm going to reread a portion of the passage I just read to you, and I'm going to insert which part of the pattern of the Christ we are in as we are reading the section in Revelation 11. So starting in verse 7, it says this about these prophets, when they have finished their testimony. Okay, so their testimony is the word for witness. It's the exact same Greek word. And so when they have finished their testimony, right? This is their faithful witness. They have finished it. It's complete. They have done what they've been called to do. They have shared the truth of who Jesus is to the world. And what we're going to read in a moment is that those who are part of the, uh, those who dwell on the earth don't actually like it. But here's what we read in verses seven through eight. The beast, so when they have finished their testimony, their faithful witness, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Now the section that reminds us that the beast rises will make war on these people, will conquer them, and he will kill them. This is precisely suffering and death. So faithful witness, which leads to suffering and death. And notice the way John describes this suffering and death. He connects it for us. To make sure that we know this is the pattern. Because what does he say? It says their dead bodies, right? Their suffering and death will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. So he connects back to us where their Lord was crucified. And we're going to get to this in a later episode. But we do realize, right, that the Lord was crucified from Jerusalem. We know it was technically outside the city because they could not handle the thought of doing something like that in their city, but it was Jerusalem and the city of Jerusalem that put Jesus to death. And yet here John is saying the city is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt. Two very incredibly wicked and oppressive nations in the history of Israel and of our Old Testaments. And yet John says, because the same attributes were captured in Israel's leaders, they can just as easily embody, if you will, Sodom and Egypt. But in verse 11, we read this. After three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. The pattern of the Christ is now complete. Vindication and resurrection. Now, I do not want you to read this section of Revelation and look for the minutiae or look for the timeline or look for how does this, what does this mean? Does this mean that a Christian is killed and then he God really breathes life into him and his individual body raises from the dead, and people see that and then they turn and they respond. Look at it as a as a whole. Look at it like a mosaic. Don't focus so fine-tuned on the individual pieces that you miss the broad strokes. This is the pattern of the Christ. Faithful witness to Jesus leads to rejection and the feelings of torment from those who dwell on the earth. Those who dwell on the earth empowered by the beast put to death these faithful witnesses and they rejoice over them for having put them to death and then a breath of life from God enters them. They stand up on their feet and great fear falls upon all who see them. Faithful witness leading to suffering and death, leading to vindication and resurrection. We don't defend ourselves. We don't try to preserve our own rights. We simply lay our lives down sacrificially in love to those we are witnessing to in the same way that Jesus did, knowing if he can trust his father, Jesus's primary concern is obedience and faithfulness to the father. The father's task is to honor and vindicate those who trust fully in him. Now, this isn't even new to Revelation. Listen to the picture that we have that Jesus paints for his disciples in John chapter 16. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Now, Jesus is talking about his upcoming death. And he says, the world will rejoice, which is the exact same way John describes those in verse 10 of Revelation 11. He, and he says, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. And so he's identifying the fact that those who dwell on the earth, it was torment to them. It was torment to them to hear these prophets, hear these faithful witnesses speak about the love of Christ and the extravagant love that Jesus actually has for the world and that was willing and and, and necessitated challenging oppressive power structures, challenging self-serving heart agendas, challenging greed, challenging idolatry, challenging injustice, doing it in love but not being afraid of pointing out. Out the error in the thinking and the mindsets and the oppressive structures that seem to go by unchallenged in this world, both secular and religious. And then we read what Jesus says in verse 21 of John 16, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. This is the picture that Jesus is preparing his disciples for while he is explaining to them what is about to happen to him. And it's important for you and I to understand that because we live in a day that seems to only want to apply what Jesus has done for myself. And Jesus is inviting us into a life that he says is full and abundant, which is the life he actually had within himself. And as he faithfully witnessed to the truth of who he was and who his father was and the world rejected him, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly and three days later was literally raised from the dead. This is the pattern of the Christ that Jesus is calling his followers to embody, to give an expression of, or a tangible representation of who Jesus was when he walked the earth. And this is ultimately what the church is called to be and who the church is called to and how the church is called to live as we embody the pattern of of the Christ. Now, in verse 7 of Revelation 11, we're told that when these two witnesses have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Now, we have spent a lot of episodes talking about this idea of conquer. And just to remind you particularly how it relates to the pattern of the Christ in all the addresses to every one of the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, the word conquer was used as an offer of to the one who conquers, to him who conquers, to those who conquer And various promises were given to those who conquer or to those who overcome in their faithful witness. Things like they will be clothed in white robes, or the Lord will make them pillars in his temple, or he will give them a white stone with a a new name written on it that no one knows but the one who receives it. He will grant authority to eat from the tree of life, and on and on and on. All of those promises for the conquerors or for the overcomers are presented at the end of the book of Revelation as well as along the way as demonstration of these Christians are faithfully embodying the pattern of the Christ. But the question that so few people seem to ask when they're looking forward to these offers of promises or promises of reward is to ask what in the world does conquering mean? Well, and when you come to chapter 5... You are, we are told that the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he's able to open the scroll on the seven seals and look into it. And for the first time, we get a definition of what it means to conquer. It means faithful witness leading to suffering and death resulting in vindication and resurrection. Conquering means we are faithful unto death. The very promise given to the church in Smyrna in chapter two of Revelation, offering to them the crown of life. And so in chapter, in verse, um, or I'm sorry, in episode 67 of, of this podcast, the lion and the lamb, episode 68, worthy is the lamb and Revelation, um, or episode 69, conquering and to conquer. We looked at these themes because here the word conquer is not applied to the lamb or to the followers of the lamb it's applied to the beast and this is a word play because this is in fact the idea behind the gospel as it moves through the world and we looked at this in episode 69, conquering and to conquer and you may wanna go back and listen to it again because I tried to portray this reality of two trajectories, one embodied by the beast and the other embodied by the lamb. Both are said to conquer or conquest is one of the demonstrations given to us about the beast in revelation chapter six, but both of them conquer, which leads to bloodshed, right? The beast, his bloodshed is the blood of others as he takes advantage of lives, as he puts to death faithful witnesses, which revelation 11 is describing, which then according to revelation six leads to famine and ultimately leads to death. Well, the pattern of the Christ according to the lamb in Revelation 5 is that conquering or conquest leads to bloodshed, shedding one's own blood for someone else, which leads to one's hunger being satisfied in Revelation 11, which ultimately leads to life for the world. And so this play on words is significant. And we're introduced to a beast from the bottomless pit. And you might say, who is that and what is that about? We don't get to that till chapter 13. And so I'll save that for a few more episodes. But in Revelation eleven we we're told that the beast conquers the two witnesses by killing them. And yet the two witnesses conquer the beast by faithfully witnessing to Jesus unto death, just like their Lord did. Do you see what is happening? This is so important. This is so central to understand because we are blending together ideas and concepts. One situation, two different meanings Christians being killed by oppressive structures who do not like being told that their ways are unjust. They do not like having their sins and their greed and their idolatry exposed. And so they silence those who dare to point that out to them, And in so doing, they conquer. They are victorious over these oppressive, tormenting people who dare to speak the truth to them. And in the exact same moment, those witnesses firmly standing in the truth of who they know they are because of Jesus and firmly loving those people to the end, even though it costs them their life, that action is their conquering and their victory. The kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom and the kingdom of God. Dying means living, losing means winning. We are part of a kingdom. That's not of this world. And our treasure is in heaven where nothing can destroy it. And all that the world can do is threaten us, threaten violence, use violence, raise their voice, put us in jail take away our freedom, whatever they can do, that's all they can do. That is all those who dwell on the earth can ever do to Christians is attempt to threaten, take away freedoms, persecute us and kill us. And I'm speaking as an American and unfortunately in our context for me as a white male in America, the reality of actual death for believing what I believe is so far removed from my mind and unfortunately so far removed from so many other people's minds that we actually forget that all of those things were literally done to Jesus. He was threatened, had his freedoms revoked, persecuted and killed. And I sometimes wonder, I sometimes scratch my head and I think, why do we think that the life we are called to live is going to be as easy as many people wanna make it? The guy we are following got murdered for loving too compassionately and for exposing idolatries, injustices, and oppressive structures where people didn't want to see them. And so our calling as Jesus' followers is to love these people faithfully to the end, laying down our lives even so that the very ones hating us can be set free and find the life they seek also things that jesus did you know, the most famous verse in the new testament i would argue is probably john three sixteen. and what does it tell us god so loved the world that he gave his one and only son and that love was so deep so complete and so whole that it refused to see people as enemies Instead, even while hanging on the cross, as a result of that world's hatred and rejection of him, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And wouldn't you know it that the very first person Matthew tells us took notice was a Roman centurion who when he saw what happened, it said when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the son of God. Now I want you to listen to how similar that verse sounds in Matthew 27, 54 to Revelation 11:13. 13. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a 10th of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now you need to know that in Roman culture, Caesar was the son of God but for this Roman this citizen of Babylon this centurion this one among those who dwell on the earth when witnessing Jesus' self-sacrificial compassionate dying for one's enemies kind of love he came to see that Jesus more fully embodied the status of sonship in relation to God Than Caesar ever did. And that Caesar's kingdom of the sword is nothing compared to Jesus's kingdom of the cross. You know, paying homage to Caesar as a son of God was part of what it meant to be a citizen of the Roman empire. That's what you declared allegiance to, right? So everyone in the Roman culture knew that the statement of allegiance to the Roman empire was Caesar is king. And when a Roman centurion who is only there to serve the will of the emperor and to serve the peace of the empire is there to ensure that Jesus needs to be put to death when he sees what? When he sees Jesus' cry for forgiveness, when he hears Jesus' cry for forgiveness, when he sees the way that Jesus dies, and when he sees the earthquake, I can imagine the guy drops his sword stands there dumbfounded and turns his attention to Jesus as the true Son of God. This is what captures the hearts of those resistant to the truth It is when they see something embodying that reality, just like the centurion saw the love of the father embodied in Jesus on the cross. And just like people today who see the love of a father embodied in the Christians who followed the way of the lamb, even unto their own death or at the very minimum, even to having our own rights revoked, even to being criticized or critiqued or publicly humiliated or publicly shamed. And at the end of Revelation 11, the section that I just read, it says 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Here's what John is doing in this vision. He is flipping everything on its head once again. Because you need to understand that some of the descriptors that were given in this passage do in fact resemble the actions of Moses and Elijah. And one of Elijah's most famous scenes is one we've looked at before. And it was the, the tower or the, uh, the, the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings chapter 18 where Elijah saw a great deliverance from the Lord and convinced the people that the Lord was God, not Baal. But in the very next chapter... Jezebel gets wind of what Elijah has done and she sends people after him and he runs away scared to death and he's hiding from her and the Lord comes to him and reveals himself to him and Elijah expects to see the Lord in the earthquake and he expects to see him in fire and he expects to see him in a storm and he hears the Lord's voice in a whisper. The powerful God who just revealed himself by fire in the chapter before now reveals himself intimately and closely with Elijah in a whisper. Elijah is still beside himself. He's afraid for his life. He needs a God with strength and power and might to defeat a Jezebel who's coming after him with everything she's got. And Elijah says to the Lord in 1 Kings 19, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even only I am left and they seek my life to take it away. Here's Elijah. I'm alone, God. Everybody's turned their backs on you, even the religious people. Nobody trusts you. I'm all by myself. And the Lord says to him, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. The Lord promises to Elijah that he is not alone. That there are 7,000 other people in Israel, a small number, mind you, but a number much larger than Elijah all by himself, who have not bowed the knee to Baal, whose loyalty is still to the Lord. Elijah is not alone. The Lord has provided 7,000 who are still faithful to him. And while the vast majority of the people of Israel are not for the Lord, there are at least 7,000 who are. And this is a theme that many of the prophets will later pick up on, and they will call it a remnant. They'll call it a very small portion. Oftentimes it was referred to almost like it was 10%, like a tenth of the people. There's going to be a small section of people within the whole group of people who are actually faithful and loyal to the Lord. And many times it's an encouragement to recognize that a lot of times you look around you and you don't see the vast majority of people faithful to the Lord. And it is a temptation of ours that when we see the numbers that are so low to think maybe we're doing something wrong, maybe the Lord's forgotten about us and he's reminding us like he reminded Elijah, there are others. Just because you don't know where they are doesn't mean they're not there. And I have protected them and I will be with you as well. But that's not what John's doing in Revelation, 13, or Revelation 11, verse 13. John takes that image of a 7,000 number that was the remnant of faithful people and he flips it on his head. And here's what John does with it. He says, at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a 10th of the city fell. Not a 10th of the city was saved. Listen to what he's saying. A 10th of the city fell, 7,000 people we're not loyal. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Listen to what John is saying. John is saying that people's choice to be loyal to Yahweh ultimately results in one tenth of them being on the Lord's side. of those looking on don't decide to do that. What is the means by which the masses will come to faith in the Lord? It's when His people faithfully embody the pattern of the Christ and give the world a tangible, experiential, Expression, right? That's what embodying means a tangible or visible expression to an idea. What if we gave the world a tangible, visible expression of the gospel in our lives, in our bodies, in our gatherings, in our speech, in our tears, in our hugs? In our kindness, in our compassion, in our joy, in our faithful witness, embodying the pattern of the Christ. This is what it means to embody the pattern of the Christ. There was a small remnant that was preserved, but in John's vision, that is transformed. And now those who are judged is only 10% and it's 90% of And it's 90% who are saved. This is what John is doing. We read in Revelation 9 that the rest did not repent of their works. They did not repent of their idolatries. They did not repent of their oppression. Because threatening judgments alone for what you will get if you do not comply never works. It doesn't work in governments, it doesn't work in families, it doesn't work in marriages, it doesn't work in life. But when someone self-sacrificially embodies that love for you and to you because of their love for you, that grips the heart in a way that nothing else can. That is what is happening here. And what judgments alone cannot produce, faithfully embodying Jesus Christ's love does. And the rest gave glory to the God of heaven. They joined the likes of a centurion. They joined the likes of a communist guard in a prison cell, which Richard Wormbrand from Romania had opportunities to do in the 50s and 60s of of the 20th century. They see compassionate love and can explain it in no other way than to drop the sword and say, truly, he was the son of God. That's who the church is called to be. That's what it looks like to faithfully witness to Jesus Christ in a world that doesn't want to know him, but who underneath the surface needs to be freed from the very things that are occupying their time right now. So our calling as Christians is to minister to people driven by that kind of love, by that kind of compassion, knowing that just standing aloof and criticizing our culture or criticizing the way that people act in certain ways is never going to convince anyone of the truth deeply at root. It's oftentimes done particularly by Christians as a way for us to feel better about ourselves, that we're not afraid to stand up for the truth, but we are not embodying Jesus when we do that because that's not what he did. In fact, the only times Jesus actually got aggressive with people and probably raised his voice out of anger was always and only ever directed at religious people. Now, we would need to chew on that for some time to, to ponder, but he's not doing this to the culture as a whole. He's saying these things to religious people who oftentimes are more eager to close the door on God's compassion and love than God is. So that's really all the time we have for this episode. Um, I am excited for where things are headed. Revelation, I really feel, needs to have a voice in our time today. And so I'm trying to give it a voice. But I'm thankful for you, and I'm thankful for your walk of faith and how you demonstrate that in your own churches. Let me know if there are things I can pray for you about in your gatherings. I know some of you in your churches are thinking of beginning to regather, and I know that's a tricky time. We all need wisdom to know how to navigate that. But if there's anything I can do, please feel free to reach out by email at unbindingthebible at gmail.com. Thank you so much for those who've left a rating or a review on the podcast. If you haven't had a chance to do that yet, I would love it if you would. It just helps other listeners to find the podcast. And thanks again, too, for those that are supporting the podcast on a monthly basis. Your generosity is very, very much appreciated. And I've been able to buy a number of resources and, and recording equipment to help us make this podcast better. So thanks so much for your love and support and your friendship, even from a distance. Some of you have never met, but we've talked and it's been great. Until next time, have a great week.